Thank you As for I listening said, we'll to the be in uh, Second Samuel chapter twenty-four. If you want to learn and, more about uh, us, please find us on Facebook or uh, visit us at SevenSpringsPresbyterian.com. Came to a Magdalen College, which was at Oxford, and he came in for an interview, and he sat down at the desk in this dark, ominous office with many books surrounding the President Thomas Goodwin and. And as the student sat down, Thomas Goodwood merely just asked a question of five words. The question began and the student stood up and ran out of the room, unable to answer the question. The question that uh, the President Thomas Goodwin asked was, are you ready to die? Now, he was not asking that question as a threat. He was asking the question, well, are you... Uh, ready to die? Are you ready to be able to meet your maker? We find ourselves now in the last chapter of uh, 2 Samuel. Now, as we've looked before, these are not chronological. Um, We find uh, here the prophet Gad uh, is who it is, but we find uh, towards the end of David's life, uh, Nathan is actually the prophet in 1 Kings when he's in his last days. So most likely this is uh, somewhere during David's reign. And uh, we find that uh, we looked at his last words in chapter 23, and we see his words here. So therefore, they're not his last words. But this chapter uh, provides us and drives us to be able to think of these deep questions, such as, are we ready to die? That we should wrestle with how often are fleeing thoughts. What would you wish to accomplish in your life? What do you want to be remembered for? What will be written on your tombstone? Maybe even today, how have you measured your life? What shapes you? What guides you? Or maybe to put it another way, if you were to be a character in John Bunyan's tale of Pilgrim's Progress, what would your name be? Evangelist or worldly wise man? Obstinate, piety, prudence, faithful, hopeful, talkative. All of these names... Uh, that might come and spring to mind. Or maybe if we were to, uh, what question that would need to be changed? Do we wish we had a better business, a bigger bank account, had more friends or even just better friends? Do we hope that people would love us or even like us more? Maybe we struggle with uh, what we have done in the past Do we desire our life to be more full? Maybe if we got more and we could fill in the blank, money, a better career, a better marriage, whatever that might be. All of these deep pondering questions. And today our passage looks at um, the measure of a man. What David sought to be known for. And many of us know the stories of King David as we've looked through the second Samuel. We've seen him go from that shepherd in the field in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, we've seen him battle the giant and defeat Goliath, the, sin, the king that fell into that grave sin. We remember his life, but what does this passage present in his life at the end of his, as now the author of uh, 2 Samuel concludes, what is he to be remembered for? After he'd done some of these great and some of these bad things for God, what did he actually want in his life? When his head is crowned with gray hair, 
when his body is dwindling and he is no longer that fit young shepherd, that man that is unable to be able to go into battle. When he's pondering about what will come of his kingdom, which had been seen grow underneath his kingship after taking after Saul. And tonight we see that first scene of a two-part play, you might say, of these last acts of David presented to us in the book of 2 Samuel. We see what the measure is of the man, what is the measure of David. Now we've seen this all too well as we've gone through these last chapters here in 2 Samuel, this six-part closing in 2 Samuel, both end and start with sin. First it is Saul's sin. Next it is in the last part in chapter 24, as we'll see, is David's sin. Because of David's sin with Bathsheba and the Uriah the Hittite, it had brought great calamity onto the house of David. Uh, Nathan told that's exactly what would happen to him in 2 Samuel chapter 12. But now there's some form of peace again. He's no longer in battle. So we see that even that we are in the state of sin and misery, God's mercy is still greater. That we have committed a great number of sins, but God's mercy is still greater. This uh, passage really follows, uh, begins with God's hand, David's sin, and the event in the middle is the, the, the census. Then you go to David's repentance and finish with God's mercy. We'll begin with David's, uh, God's hand in verse 1. <clears throat> it says there in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So again, we begin chapter 24 with the word again. Now, this is not a foreign concept that God often uh, looks through, and uh, there's many things that uh, cause the anger of the Lord to be kindled. How often this is the story that echoes uh, in the life of Israel and even in our lives. Before we even begin the narrative, we're reminded of this simple pattern that repeats over and over again, like a broken toy that repeats the same thing over and over, that this is the cycle that we find ourselves in throughout all of the Old Testament, throughout all of the Bible, that sin is prominent in our lives. Maybe we're reminded that sin is knocking at our door. Sin has crept into our life. But what has happened, the anger of the Lord has kindled. Now this is exactly, uh, again, struck again. Uzzah, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, uh, was uh, kindled against Uzzah. God struck him to, to the ground because of his error and he died there beside the ark of the Lord. In chapter 12, the ang- David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives... The man who has done this deserves to die. And now, God's anger is kindled against David. Uzzah dies. David says that this man deserves to die. So what will happen to David? That the Lord is angry towards him. Again, we see that pattern in uh, chapter 6. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. 
that place which is called Perez Uzzah to this day. Or in chapter 13, when David heard of these things, he was very angry. And here we see this pattern that now the Lord is angry with David. Now, but the difficult part of this passage is that it says that he incited David against them, saying, now we need to start off with a uh, foundation, that God is not the author or approver of sin. So when it says that God incited David against them, we need to be able to put our categories in place and be able to say that God did not then cause David to be able to sin. Actually, we find in First Chronicles, actually, what people would call an apparent contradiction, but First Chronicles chapter 21, which is the parallel passage that says that Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So you have in verse 21, uh, 24, verse 1, uh, the anger of the Lord was kindled. Um, but, um, and then the NAS, NRSV says that he incited David against them. So we need to be able to separate this. Was it Satan that incited David or was it the Lord that incited David? Well, I think that both can be true. Satan is a means and an instrument that the Lord uses. Um, So the Lord, through his uh, sovereign powers, can uh, use secondary means. That here Satan is the one that causes David to fall into this temptation. But this is all a part of God's plan that we see that, uh, as the author says in Psalm 145, the Lord is righteous in all of his ways and kind of all of his works. Or as the Westminster Confession of Faith expresses that God's most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. So, what does then this mean? This anger of the Lord was kindled against um, Israel and he incited David against them. So, what does that mean? Possible it's the anger that's held against Saul of that blood guilt which was uh, spent, spilt back in chapter 21 as we see. One actually suggested that the Lord's anger was the rebellions of Absalom and Sheba against the divinely established government of David. It's possible, but we're not for certain. Um, So we find many different options, I think, we need to then be able to use the scripture to be able to interpret scripture. We see here that it says the Lord incited David against them. It says that Satan incited David against him in First Chronicles chapter 21. We see in, in Genesis 50 what, uh, what uh, Joseph's brothers intended for evil, um, God intended for good. So it's that although one person's intentions are evil, then does not mean that that evil is uh, null and void. It's still evil, but God intends it for good, that he has a purpose in that. Uh, Acts 2.23, that famous passage again in Peter's sermon. The Heidelberg Catechism uh, puts it this way in question 27. What dost thou understand by the providence of God? The almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby as it were his hand, by his hand, he still uphold, upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them, 
that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. So it is God's fatherly hand using uh, maybe Satan to be able to incite David. And here uh, the author in Second Samuel is, is putting this connection that it's God's fatherly hand at work. And we see by the end that it is actually God's plan and purpose to be able to bring about something good from even this sin that is from within David's heart. So how do we then uh, connect this? We either point the finger at God or we point the finger at us. Um, many people are then quick to be able to point the finger at God. Um, when we travel down dark valleys in our life, great loss and grief, often it is God is the first one who is to blame. David throughout his life has seen his children pass over the river of death. He has seen great persecution. When our lives are going well, we see we're the first ones we praise. We must be doing something right. We believe this uh, is because of us that we receive these blessings. Now, we often need to reverse this. Often it is God's uh, blessing despite us that sometimes those dark times are a result of our sins and sometimes those are a result of other people's sins. We should seek to be able to praise God during the darkest times, and he is the one who gives us hope in that moment. That we have hope and to be able to trust in God. But we also see in this passage that God, especially when we see the first chronicles, that God uses secondary means to be able to bring about his purposes. Here it is Satan who incites David in First Chronicles, but ultimately it's David's sin. It's David's heartfelt sin that we see in this passage that David really takes the blame and points the finger at him. He's the one who confesses. He's the one who says that it is him, uh, his own uh, sin. He doesn't sit the finger and point the finger at Satan. He points it at himself. Now, But then we also have that sense of general sin as well. Not just Satan and personal sin, but general sin in this fallen world. But we don't need to be able to dwell on this too much. But we need to be reminded that blessed are those who take refuge in him. So here we begin with God. um, The anger of the Lord was kindled. But then we find the second portion of David's pride. Ultimately... Like I said before, it's David's sin here in this passage that takes the front and center. It is not uh, the Lord's inciting David. It is not Satan inciting David. It is David and what he does. So what does David uh, seek to be able to do? And he says at the end, go number Israel and Judah. Then we see in verses 2 to 4. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of the Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. 
So here we get a little bit more understanding of what's happening in this passage that drives to this error and sin. That here, the, David says, go number the people of Israel. And uh, he, here Joab is with him. And he tells him, go through the tribes from Dan to Beersheba and number the people. That I may know the, people of the, uh, the number of people. Now, we need to understand that a census is not sinful. Actually, in in Exodus chapter 30, we're commanded that they are to be able to take census. But we're told in 30 verse 12 that when you take a census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them. And there be no plague among them when you number them. So here, there's specific instructions given in the law about how a census was to be able to be performed. But ultimately, I think, again, it points back to David in this passage, and specifically aspects of David's sinful desires, which is found here. You see this in verse 2. Why does he do this? That I may know the number of the people. It's not about the health of the people, but he wants to be able to know. David seeks to be able to find his gratitude in the number specifically. Like people seeking social media and trying to reach a certain magic number. Or for people to live in a certain neighborhood or drive a certain car. Here, what is driven by David is this discontentment of being able to know what his kingdom is looking like. Now, Joab, again, rebukes David. This is, again, not the first time that he does so. Not only Joab, but it is also Joab and the commanders of the army. So, Joab is there giving advice. The commanders of the army are giving advice. But he asks a very specific and pointed question. Why does my lord the king delight in this thing? So, here David saying that I may know the number of the people and and Joab sees a glisten in his eye, this, this sin that's within. He seeks to be able to delight in this number, in this census. He's meant to be able to delight in the word, in God's commandments. But yet, here's this delight in David to be able to have these numbers. Psalm 73 says, Whom I, have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. But yet here, it seems that David seeks not just to be able to have Christ or God. He seeks to be able to have this number written down. The Lord delighted in him, he says in 2 Samuel chapter 22. Or in 1 Kings, blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Now, there could be potential reasons why David wants this census. The the numbers that he have is out of date. Maybe it's about how long his kingdom will last and he's trying to look at the graphs and see. Maybe he's actually trying to see the faithfulness of the promises of God. But what we actually see is that out of all this, it seems that it's a sinful census driven by David's sin. 
But in verse 4 it says, But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. Actually, if we were to translate this as other uh, words have been translated in, that word has been translated, it's actually in Exodus, it's used over and over again of the king of Egypt. And that is that his heart was hardened, that Pharaoh prevailed or hardened his heart against what the Lord was doing. And here, David, his, he prevailed, he hardened against the voice of jo- Joab and the other army uh, uh, commanders of the army. He was strong over them. He overruled them. Again, we have great warnings in these pages of Scripture. Great warning for those whom God has given that role of leadership to. When you seek to be able to elevate yourselves, whereas James writes in James chapter 3, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that you who teach will be judged with stricter, greater strictness. Great warning for parents, teachers, employees, even our peers, of those we have influence that we don't seek to be able to overpower. Do we often think we're right? Do we often think we need to be right? Do we see the faults and flaws in others and never the faults and flaws in ourselves? How do we respond when we are questioned or given advice from another? Do we seek the approval of others as David has seems to be able to take delight in this magic number he wants to be able to see on this bit of paper? But here comes the center of what this is all about, and that's the census in Verses 4 to 9. But the king were, king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aorah and from the city in the middle of Midia Valley towards Gad and on to the Jezir. And there they came to Gilead and Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan and from Dan they went to Sidon. And came to the fortress of Tyre and all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites and went from the Negev of Judah to Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king in Israel that were 800,000 valiant men who drew their sword and the men of Judah were 500,000. So here they see the scope of the land. They covered this territory that uh, did not include lands David had conquered, but involved basically a circuit of all the tribes of Israel. The route begins down the east of the Jordan River at Aora, in the southern boundary of Israel's eastern territory. They went up to the north and the northeast, and eventually reaching Sidon on the Mediterranean coast, and then proceeded southward to the, then to the east to Beersheba. Now this is a large task, uh, about 10 months. Joab and his men returned to Jerusalem, bringing the results to the king. And we find, finally, the numbers which David wanted to be able to see. These numbers are very high, implying a total population of at least 6 million in the land, some have said. But sometimes, uh, some people, this word thousand is not necessarily thousand as number. It's more a, a military unit 
um, that people speak of. So some of those units might have been small. Some have suggested instead of 8,000, it's more to 5 to 14 people per unit. This might then make it more probable in numbers. But in terms of the report, they bring it to the king to be able to reveal that one purpose of the numbering was to ascertain the, the military capacity of what uh, David might be able to accomplish. Again, we don't know why David wanted this number. We can only go with the information we're given. However, what actually happens next actually teaches us more about what we've been told about. That's what we see in David's humility in verses 10 to 12. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So previously, God had to send Nathan to David to be able to tell him the story of what happened with the the man and his little lamb. But here, we find ourselves that he arose in the morning, and here David's heart struck him. We see here that David is not confronted with a prophet, but he he, he knows in his sense that he has sinned. He's finally got that number that he wanted all this time. But his confession is that I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Reminds us of Psalm 51 again. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Have mercy. We see, we'll see this next week, but in verse 17 we're told that David says that I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? That he does things very foolishly as um, we find about Saul in chapter 13. You have done foolishly and not command, kept the command of the Lord. Or as Saul said in chapter 26, I have sinned. But here David shows of his humility, his repentance. That he, he, what seems to be this numbering because of his pride, he is struck and what we see is humility is the only cure for pride. But we also see that pride fights till everyone loses. But it's also never too late to repent. Thomas Brooks says, God, who has made a promise to late repentance, has made no promise of late repentance. And through true repentance is never too late, yet late repentance is seldom true. That God will forgive us for our late repentance, but he has, does not guarantee that opportunity for late repentance. And that although we have true repentance that is never too late. But late repentance is seldom true. 
Here David's heart is struck and he repents almost what seems instantaneously. Now we might not have censuses in our lives or as publicly as King David. But how often do we seek the approval from others that are around us? That we, if we have had our, our hearts struck because of sin, either great sin or particular sin, we learn from this that it is never too late to be able to turn to God. The repentance is the life and the fruit of a Christian from the first time they cry out to God. Even to David, as, as he's gone through so much, wherever this census is taking part in his life, he still needs to repent. David, even in his dying days, cried to the Lord to be able to show him mercy. And that's what we see here in the last two verses. God's mercy in verses 13 to 14. So Gad came to David and told him, and said, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide for what answer I shall return to him who sent me. So the last thing that he was told was in verse 13. In verse 12, Gad is told, Three things I offer to you. Choose one of them that I may do it. So Gad comes to David and gives him three options. Three options of this repentance and mercy shown. Either famine, foe, or fall into pestilence. Here you have this great problem before David. He knows he has sinned. Now this might be why you would see uh, the the fleeing from his foes. He's numbering, trying to get capacity of his military prowess and understanding. But David's response shows how much he trusts and loves God. As we looked at Psalm 51 when we went through, we we saw one of the first things that, that David understood as he turned to God. Why did David turn to God? What is it about God's character that we can learn from David's confession? And he said that it is mercy, that God is merciful, abounding in mercy. This is exactly David's response in chapter, verse 14. As David now responds to Gad, three options before you. And he explains that I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of men. He understands in this this period of life that he is in great distress. There is no good option before him. But he understands one thing about God, and he says that your mercy is great. David, as he's thinking about whatever prideful reasons he wants this census, David is humbled before God. That him come now found a very blessing. 
Robert Robertson, lived in the 18th century, was a barber's apprentice. He fell under the powerful influence of George, George Whitfield's preaching. One of the favorite lines in this is, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And this is actually thought to be quite an autobiographical statement referring to Robertson's early life. When his mother sent him to London to be an apprentice. It was during this time, according to a hymnologist, Kenneth Osbeck, said that he associated with a notorious gang of hoodlums and lived a debauched life. While he ca- then he came under the spell of Whitfield. And here David, at the end of his life, finds that he needs the mercy of God. As that hymn ends, Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O Lord, and take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. David's logic to why he says, let me not fall into the hands of men, but let me fall into the hands of the Lord, he, he bases upon one thing, that the Lord is merciful, for his mercy is great. David, towards the end of his life, his resound with wisdom is such a true statement. Time and time again, David's life is filled with highs and lows. In the last chapter, 2 Samuel points to one thing. Although we are in the estate of sin and misery, God's mercy is greater still. We should run freely into his hand and seek his face alone. The Christ is the one who is come. That God's hand of wrath might be satisfied and we might see only his mercy. Because of Jesus Christ, the stump of Jesse, the one who sits on David's throne forever. We'll find out what happens to David next week. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.